Hi everybody, it's great to have you with me for this week's episode of Playing With Fire. This week I interviewed Jedediah Jenkins, he's a best-selling author and a friend of mine. We've always connected on the big stuff and I've been dying to get in a serious D&M with him for a while, and we definitely got to do that here. <laughs> this conversation really opened my eyes to the ways language both influence and hinder us. I can't wait for you to hear more about the ways he's had to unlearn ideas from his youth, refine the language that embraces uncertainty, and connect it to his work. Stick around at the end for some of my insights. But without further ado, let's go. I'm so excited. I'm to be so here glad with this you. isn't on Zoom. I'm yeah. like, I just want to be by you. I want to feel the energy. I know. It's so special to be able to do this again. And I want to start off by talking about how we met because I always find the sort of origin stories super um, inspiring for people's friendships. You know, mm. what brought them together? What constellations had to cross in order for them to meet? I always think that it says a lot about the friendship, you know? How oh, you I met. love that perspective. It's true. <laughs> I don't remember a moment. I remember hearing about you from Kenny, my roommate. I think he knew you before I knew you. Mm. And you lived across the canyon from us on like a sheep hill <laughs> or something. Sheep farm. Actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? And I mean, of course, I knew your music. And I just remember we were obsessed. And then, you know, then somehow, I guess... Kenny found you or I don't even know yeah, yeah. how that happened. But then you were just in the mix and and I just I just really remember how it felt to get to know you because we were like very cosmically, spiritually mm. like in the same conversation with being alive. And I remember that connection. But I I'm actually notoriously bad at not remembering people that are kindred to me mm. the the meeting. Yeah, it is hard. I think I like how you do it, which is I remember the feeling yeah. that you gave me. I think that's great. I remember meeting you also through Invisible Children and having a particular feeling whenever mm. we talked. But I had this uh, feeling that we would become friends at some point, but it was like we just hadn't found the isolated time to really connect yet, you know, mm. over like just a, a dinner or something. But um, I remember you being involved with Invisible Children and then, of course, following your Instagram account after we'd hung out a few times. And then sort of forming this online friendship with you that you probably never <laughs> knew existed, but I was finding such a resonance in your writings. Uh, and so I was, of course, overjoyed to find out that you had written a book, um, which I also had many beautiful, personal, deep moments with. Um, and it's changed from a phenomenon for you because... I feel like I know you so well because I know <laughs> your inner workings. I yeah. know the deconstruction of your faith. I'm also someone who's spent time in churches and has had to do my own journey of unknowing and relearning. Right. So I feel this closeness to you. But, you know, you must get that with, with fans of the book where they know so much about your life and you know so little about theirs. Yeah, that is there's a term you may be very familiar with it called parasocial relationships. I heard about that on your podcast. Yes. Yeah. And it fascinates me because... I think I'm in the line of work where it's the most parasocial possible because as a memoirist, my entire job is to tell all of who I am to strangers. Because if you're an actor or even a, even if you're a singer who writes your own lyrics and writes very personal lyrics, it's still a three-minute song. Yeah. And you're 
even if you use real names and street names and places in a song, it's still not that much information. Sure. But if you write a 300-page book about your life and what you're going through and remembering conversations, someone can really feel like they know you. Because it's even more than just having met me. It's like you're in my head. 100%. And that's my actual job. But for me, if somebody knows me, they, they've they read a long book and know my mom and know my <laughs> sexuality and my yes. deconstruction. And so... A, it, that limits the amount of people and also weeds them out. Like uh -huh. only someone who's very like kindred to me uh -huh. in, a, in a way would come up to me. That's right. Do you, what is it like as a musician when fans, do you feel like a fan knows you or do you feel like they're trying to consume you for a selfie or like? That's a great question. Yeah. I find that a conversation with someone who's consumed my art um, it's far more fulfilling to me than a photograph and I try to move everything away from con consumption um, to, to connection um, um. actively and, and I think my fans know that so um, it's kind of an intentional practice of mine to try to encourage it that way but at the same time of course everyone wants a photo for Instagram and you, you know you just have to work with that but for me that often um, I take on a different posture when people just want to photograph because I realize they want an yeah. exchange they might not actually really want a conversation which right. seems it's actually a little sad to admit isn't it because you want to believe <laughs> that everyone wants this long-form conversation but that is a an ex, um, that's a lot of energy yeah. for, for for me but also for the person who um, is 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 gonna sort of talk about what the music means to them it's actually asking a lot of people sometimes because they don't always know how to articulate it. Yeah. So the easiest thing to do is to get a photograph. So mm, That's true. That's a very sweet and yeah. empathic response to that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the name of this podcast is Playing With Fire. I wanted to explore I this. That. You like that? Yeah. Very much. I can tell you do. <laughs> um, that's why you're on the podcast. Mm. So playing with fire can mean so many things, right? It immediately makes me think of the child that has to touch the thing to check that it's hot. Yes. And that's how our brain learns. Um, I also get religious references in my mind because, of course, fire and the burning bush has a very kind of divine mm. idea to it. Um, but it, it also makes me think of danger and risk and, and disruption, you know, pushing, pushing a little bit to see how far one can go. I wanted to first start by asking, what does that evoke for you? Well, I mean, I have always heard that in the context of you're playing with fire, which means you are flirting with disaster. Be mm -hmm. careful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what comes to my mind is the weaponization of the concept of a slippery slope that was used against me by the church, exploring my sexuality and the history of the Bible and what it means and mm. things like that, I would get admonished for like, I don't know, doubting things and questioning scripture, questioning this like faith tradition that I was raised in because it was like, oh, well, if you question that, then you question everything. And if you quit and like, you're playing with fire if you mm. do that and you're going to mm. stray from God and whatever. Yep. Ultimately, that's rooted in evoking in me the fear of being exiled. Yep. Which is like many people's worst fear. Yep. In some different form. And so 
now on the other side of the liberty of knowing myself and feeling bold and not fearing rejection and finding my own understanding of a worldview, the universe, um, now playing with fire feels like a badge of honor. Like mm. it's, I mean, very, it's very much like real that you can like play with fire in the wrong way and burn sure. down Los Angeles. Yes. But, um, it feels like a badge of honor. Like I was willing to test things even when it could come at gr- great cost. Cause it was like important for me to do that. Yeah. That's beautiful. Wow. Playing with fire for me has always <clears throat> evoked this idea of um, challenge somewhat. And I like that the word play is in there because it mm-hmm. still has this lightness to it where <clears throat> to attack with fire is very different to play with it. Totally. For some reason, playing with fire also evokes ideas of he- heresy. And anyone who in the past has spoken out against the church or against religious um, frameworks has often been called a blasphemer, right? Or totally. Kind of being exiled, as you said. But we owe so much to the people who did that, whether it was St. Teresa of Avila or, you know, so so many, you know, the Sufi teachers that challenged aspects of Islam and, and were able to bring into awareness that there was another way to interpret yeah. things and also um, that we could, we could question this God. We could afford to make God that big. That it it's was funny. <laughs> I just had such an epiphany while you were saying that that all the great teachers we study, in their including Jesus, in their lifetime, they were in big trouble. Yep, big trouble. They were like accused of lighting fires. That's you right. know, and That's that right. is so. I mean, there is no way of like there is no wisdomed way without being accused of that. Amen. That's interesting. That is interesting. So yeah, fire makes me think of that as well. Um, I'll start talking a little bit about my spiritual journey, which I've probably told you about in texts sometimes along the way, but Mm -hmm. um, I did not grow up religious. I did get very interested in religion around the age of 13, 14. um, And I started attending churches with with friends of mine back in New Zealand. Mm. Um, Had a huge, you know, capacity for curiosity. Music became my form of prayer and writing. You know, this was a way that I was expressing and questioning i came to faith as a questioner and Mm. i was allowed to and i was made given space to do so there was no parents filtering it for me there was Mm. no pastor interpreting things for me so i feel very grateful for that i then became pretty um you know well rooted in in a church um which came with its set set of values and its (laughs) worldview and at times i felt uncomfortable about certain things but you know, it was nice to belong, mm-hmm. right? It was nice to belong. Yeah. I moved to Australia when I was 17, and I very rarely walked back into a church. I think church became different things. It became mm. nature. It became service. I volunteered a lot with the Salvation Army, and I, I really wanted to put words into action mm. rather than kind of feeling that I had the theology down but none of the, the works. Yeah. And uh, I discovered the Christian mystics. Mm. And everything kind of changed. Um, and I, I, I say Christian mystics, meaning that's where I started. But of course, that soon became Sufis and Zen Buddhists yeah. and Kabbalah teachings. And, you know, it just goes on and on. So you unlock the door. Uh, so, you know, these, these teachers changed my life. And to find modern people yeah. my age that were yeah. also reading this stuff yeah. was so exciting. And so I can't do this podcast without at least asking what your entrance point 
was for mysticism? Yeah, so I would say it's it's a sequence of little fires, playing with little fires. Beautiful. Okay, because I remember the first time I felt, because I was raised in the church, it was like mandatory. Yep, okay. And I, I was not down. I didn't believe in it. And then I really found God and fell in love with the Jesus in high school, which thrilled my mother because, but, but, you know, now looking back on it, I see that it was really the cool boys in high school started a Bible study and they invited me and I wanted to belong so badly. Like, and, and I mean, the message of self-sacrifice and unconditional love and what, I mean, hello, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, sure. So, you know, then I remember, I think it was freshman year of college or sophomore year I stumbled upon reading C.S. Lewis and he was you know an Oxford professor like true genius and like pretty much making the logical argument for Christianity and it just slid into my brain like a delicious donut I was like this is so good and I feel I think I had been raised like in the south in church and I had never like felt like I heard a very super intelligent pastor Mm. or I didn't associate faith with smarts. I kind of, I kind of felt the opposite Mm. and C.S. Lewis changed that for me. So then that, then he became my like idol and, and he was generally sanctioned and accepted by the Christian community. They were like, Oh yeah, he's made. I mean, there are some people who, really read his work and see that he actually is like more mystic than you would realize. But he kind of like, I'll never forget, he was talking about the exclusivity of the Christian message and its and its spiritual whatever. And he said, he said, it's been years, but he said something like, I believe in Christianity because I look out into the world and I see patterns of life and death, death and resurrection the sun sets and rises again in the morning. The season changes, the leaves fall and they rise from the ground, whatever. And, and he's like, he goes, I believe Christianity and the message of Christianity best reflects my observed truth of the universe. Wow. And Hinduism is second. Huh. And huh. when he said that, I remember I read it, I read that and I go, oh my gosh, like, it was just such a different way to frame it where he said he basically was saying Hinduism is almost there. And he also said Christianity is not all the way there, but it's as close as we can get. And I just found that to be so invitational yes. to the idea of like we're looking for God at all times. Yes. At whatever that is. Like it's just the, the human quest to find the meaning of the universe that we wake up or wake up into. It's also extremely humble of him to say that, which is not something we see often when theologians or mystics or scientists, to be honest, you know, make claims about the universe. We don't see a lot of humility, you know. So tell me how that then led you toward mystic authors. Did any pop up out of that time or? Well, it's just, it's a very interesting progression because it really went from C.S. Lewis to probably Madeline Lingle and then it went to Wendell Berry. Of course. Then Thomas Merton, of course. That was, Thomas Merton was when I heard, I, I knew what that word was. Yeah. 
and then I knew the word and I was probably in Barnes and Noble or something and saw like Hafez or Rumi or something and it said like the mystic poets and I'm like oh I think I'm obsessed with mystics yes and you know like Daniel Adinsky's versions of Hafez and Rumi have gotten they've gotten some pushback because he kind of removes a lot of specificity around Islam and makes it more general mm. and I find that to be interesting because if it had been specifically Islam, Islam, I at that stage wouldn't have read it. Now I knew they were like Sufi mystics, like from the Islamic tradition, and yeah. like I knew that. But it was the fact that they changed like the word to God, and they, Daniel like made everything I don't know more Western. Yeah, and that made it to where I could receive it because one of the key factors of the brand of evangelicalism I was raised in was to distrust all outside things because they they have in there a deception there's a there's a concept of like like mental cleanliness Mm. that where an idea can be tainted by the devil by just putting one drop of a virus in it or a bacteria Mm. or you know like it's like don't listen to secular music or don't like oh did you know that that artist is actually a scientologist whatever and so you're like that contaminates everything And, you know, the, the concept of deception and being deceived was very big in my Christian community. And so I was trained with like an immune response to certain language. Like if someone didn't call God, God, and they mm-hmm. called God the universe, mm-hmm. or, or they qualified God with saying, you know, I believe in God, or, you know, you might say the universe, or you might say something else. That was a big red flag for me mm. of like, oh, that person doesn't believe in the exclusive truth of Jesus Christ yep. in the Bible as I read it. Yep. And yep. so I was trained to be like, that person can teach me nothing. Wow. So it took a long time to like deconstruct that. That's huge. And, you know, for someone who wasn't even raised in that um, tradition, it still really gets under your skin and it starts to infiltrate the way you view everything. Um, and I've also gone through that journey myself. You appear to have found God outside the church, clearly. What are some of the ways that you now find a temple, a place of worship, a a vehicle for transcendence? Mm. Well, on that journey of reading millions of books, I also fell in love with Ralph Waldo Emerson and, and the existentialist and and this idea that it was so inspiring to me, specifically a lot of Emerson's writing, and in the sense that his the, the crux of his ethos yep. is that you don't need anything else besides your own experience to teach you what the universe has to teach you. Like your senses, everything you see, touch, smell, live through, How could God expect anything more than that? How could God expect you to magically find a book with all the rules? Mm -hmm. And what if you didn't find it, the idea? And I just found that to be very compelling. Yes. And, and, And so I guess my, like, pursuit of God and the truth and the church that I now move through is just honoring the absolute wonder of existence with curiosity Mm. and 
what I perceive to be a duty to understand and seek more and tell about it. Like to take this experience, this profound experience of being conscious and consciousness we don't even understand and be amazed by it and be grateful and tell about it. You know, like Mary Oliver's poem. It says, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. You know what? I've never come across that poem before. It's so short and yet it's literally it. It is like what I believe. Oh, that's such an amazing motto. Yeah. Wow. So, all that to say, that's that has kind of become my posture for the pursuit of spiritual things and just existence. Yeah. And what's interesting is like, pay attention, be astonished, is paying attention implies a very generous curiosity of just like, what is true? And so... The, my journey of like stepping away from the church that hurt me because of my sexuality and my questions, it was it took me a while to even be comfortable with a lot of like Christian language. Language, yes. It was yeah. like triggering to me. Oh God, I can imagine, yeah. And it's really special to realize you've reached the other side and now it's not. Hmm. Now you're curious about it again. You're like, ah. what do they see like what is their special access to the truth because every Mm -hmm. perspective every angle brings with it a shadow but also brings with it a very pointed point of light like a direction of understanding and so i have reached that place now where i am not triggered by anything and take some work though takes a i mean i'm 38 it took (laughs) me up till now and that's pretty pretty cool it is. I want to spend some time on language because <laughs> I I do find it hard to talk sometimes about my relationship with God because I feel the need to sometimes actually first define God, yeah. you know, before we talk about do you believe in God or, or this or that. Well, 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 what God are we referring to? What yeah. are we referring to? Yeah. Your are you constructed trying to do a gotcha here or like asking me? Right, right. And are we talking about a gendered God? Because yeah. off, the, off the bat, no, I don't right. believe in that, you know. So, um, you know, language can be so helpful and it's your world. I mean, you operate in the medium of language. But how limiting do you find it to be when you spend your time writing about things that are inherently ephemeral and you know impossible to pin down how do you wrestle with the limitations of language well you said something earlier about the title of this show which is you like the word play yeah because it's light yeah and i think the the gatekeeping of of evangelicalism around language Like, don't call God a she. It's a God is a he and it's scriptural. Don't don't say that. Say this like that. um, That obsession with certainty and control of language. To me, it's an act of rebellion to like play with language and not not feel the need to define and lock in and explain and like because I, as a writer and as a human, I want to play. Because play implies that you feel safe. You you don't play when you're running from a bear. It's it implies that 
we're going to do we're going to improv we're going to pretend <laughs> this we're going to try this thing over here and i i just resist the evangelical urge to be certain about things and so at least at this stage in my life, I'm trying to soften reality and poke holes in the rigidness yeah. of things. And so it's actually not that hard mm. to use language to play. Yes. Versus, it is very hard to try to use the weapon that was formed against you, which is the certainty of language, and then revamp it in another direction and yes. try to like defend the other thing in this with the same tools that were used to like make you feel like shit so it's like but if you don't play that game anymore you step back and you're like i'm not playing your game wow then it's it's easier I wanted this podcast to really be a conversation around the intersection between art and spirituality um that spirituality for me eh, is still a heavy word, and so I, I quite like the term transcendence. And mm. um, does that word evoke much for you? Do you think that's a word that we can kind of claim as a space that's actually very inclusive? Well, transcendence as a word, I love and feel no trigger towards because it, I think it might be more used in a Catholic or traditional environment than my like Southern yeah. evangelical. Like we didn't talk about that word. <laughs> And to me, that word almost feels like meditation and sure. things like that, which is a di which for me was a, a, a world I didn't know anything about until living in California. The first time I've ever really used that word and meant it was from Father Richard Rohr when he taught me the concept of transcend and include, which is the ultimate arrival of reconstruction. Wow. So it's, you know. You're constructed with a worldview that doesn't quite work like evangelicalism. You deconstruct it because you tried to make it work and it failed. And then a lot of people get stuck there. And then reconstruct, he says, is you transcend the thing you deconstructed, but you don't have to throw it all out. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can include it. You bring it with you because it taught you crucial lessons and not all of it is wrong. Wow. It's only the truth that's been remixed in a way to benefit some and hurt others. And that's just not how the truth works. So transcend and include, I love that because that implies you're beyond the trigger. You're beyond the wounding. You're in a place where you can learn again and rebuild the world as it really is and love even the things that hurt you because that is reality. Like mm. wow. the things that hurt you are your teachers. And so when you can, when you can reach a place where you can say, thank you for hurting me, hmm. That is when you know you're on the road to wisdom. And so transcendent include is like my favorite concept. And that's transcendence also has a positive connotation when you transcend something because it isn't just going through. It almost feels like going up. Wow. Thank you for bringing up Richard Rohr because I feel he's such a crucial teacher for our time. Um, you were so kind to send me a series of conversations, you know, cut up into sort of piecemeal bits, bites for me of your conversation with him, which you then turned into an article for your yeah. magazine, correct? Um, now, in that interview, sexuality came up, and I'm so glad it did because his answers kind of blew my mind. I'd never really heard anyone talk about gender and, and sexuality with this sort of fluidity, especially a Catholic priest. 
Um, but I was interested to know your take on it and what you felt about that part of the conversation, if you recall any of it. But he spoke about those with you know various sexual orientations that weren't the heterosexual norm having transcended the binary of male and female in a way that was highly mystical and actually that we could learn from those that were not chained to their gender. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing terribly, but I just remember thinking, my God, that connects to me so strongly mm. because there is something about being able to be in touch with both masculine and feminine, much like God, I imagine, is, right? As this, this beautiful spectrum of all the things. And that there is something there that we actually have to, to learn from and haven't been able to make space for because we simply couldn't understand it. Mm. I just wanted to get your take on that, what that felt like for you. Was it liberating? Or? It was very liberating because in truth, as a as a young person speaking to a mentor position, person like Father Richard Rohr, um, I was pretty removed from the church. I hadn't been to church in ages. And one would think I wouldn't really care what a priest says. <laughs> right. I'm like, I don't believe that yeah. like you do. So, yeah. But there's there was something in the childhood of my inner heart to hear a man of faith and a leader, like a father, say that Jeez, was yeah. deeply healing. Yeah. And and not only to say it as if he's catching up to progressive politics, but to say it from such a wise place that he's actually farther than like than anyone except certain indigenous cultures that have been doing this for 30,000 years. But the idea that to have both masculine and feminine energy manifest itself in different combinations on a fluid scale if you are beyond the binary and you're somewhere else, then you have the ability to bridge that gap for people who are further on the spectrum. Because I felt that with my own life, with a, it, many LGBT people will probably agree with me that you, I became like a therapist for my guy friends and my girlfriends to talk to each other and help them craft a text and help them. Because, because of my masculine and feminine energy that is like, playing within me as a gay man, I can understand both sides better than they can understand each other. I couldn't agree more. And so that's like, I, that's what I, so, so I felt that, but I'd never put language to it. And then Father Roar said that, and I was like, that is the truth. Yeah. And it, you know, when you hear something for the first time, it's funny when it can really land on you because one would think it would take certain truths you hear and you're not ready to hear them and they almost don't make sense. Other things you hear and something in the back of your mind had all of those thoughts already, but nobody strung them together yet. Wow. And so that's why when it when that neuron connects, all the other connections were already made. So it almost feels like you turn the lights on, but all the wiring was there. The lights were plugged in. Nobody just connected it. Anyone out there that's going through deconstruction or going through like just a worldview change or and you're scared. What is so interesting is if you actually trust the meaning of the universe and of God's plan for your life and you start saying things or what's so interesting is I would just say little things. I would say authors I'm reading, you know, just and then someone like Kimbra, who I had only met once or twice, all of a sudden we realized, oh, me too. Wait, you're reading that book? Wait. And then 
that is a little wink from God saying, you're not alone. You were afraid you would be, yeah. but you're not. So those winks you gave me were very helpful and made me feel very cradled by the universe. So thank you. Here's the cradling. <laughs> <laughs> So much to take away from this convo with Jed. First of all, stepping outside of exclusionary thinking and developing a generous curiosity toward truth. Finding your tribe of authors. Learning that your own experience, your senses, these are the greatest portals toward transcendence. How can we rid the obsession with certainty? It's an act of rebellion to play with the language we were given. And as we transcend that language, we also come back around and learn to include it. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And finally, I love learning about how our understanding of sexuality and gender identity can lead us toward transcendence and help us fill in the gaps of our own experience. Join the conversation over at Discord. It's a place where we can build community around things we're learning together. This podcast is brought to you by TalkHouse. Feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you, and I'll see you next time.